I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everybody. This is David Kern. Welcome to Close Reads. Before I kick it over to the show, I want to make a quick announcement. We're excited to announce not one but two scholarships to our upcoming Searcy Summer Institute, which takes place June 3rd through the 8th at the Chitola Resort near Blowing Rock, North Carolina. Um, this year, we're going to be spending a week discussing Shakespeare's play Hamlet. Uh, it's open to 15 people. And our partners at IEW and Classical Academic Press are uh, helping us offer two scholarships to, to this event. We know it's a bit more of an expensive event, just given the nature of it. So we want to make it possible for more people to be able to come. So uh, thanks to IEW and thanks to Classical Academic Press, we're going to be able to do that. IEW, if you don't know about them, well, you really should. You can head over to IEW.com slash start to learn about them. They provide teachers and teaching parents with methods, materials, and resources, which will aid them in training students to become better listeners, speakers, readers, writers, thinkers, and listeners. To learn more about IEW and their lifetime 100% money-back guarantee, again, you can head over to IEW.com slash visit. And our friends over at Classical Academic Press are offering Classical U. Head over to classicalu.com to learn more about them if you're looking to become a better classical educator or to deepen your understanding of classical education. At Classical U, CAP brings you over 25 courses to guide you. Master classical educators from all over the nation instruct Classical U courses so you can study with true mentors all at your own pace. You can preview any of the courses for free and the subscription is just less than $20 a month. That subscription includes downloadable resources, curriculum guides for schools and co-ops, as well as a brand new forum to discuss specific course content or general education topics. You'll also have access to the resources through the Classical U app. So if you desire to increase your classical education knowledge or become a better educator, Classical U can help you. And again, that's visit, uh, visit classicalu.com to enjoy all of those free previews or to subscribe. IEW and CAP have been longtime partners with us, and we, uh, we we are so grateful for their friendship and for their support. And um, we are very thankful that, thanks to them, these scholarships are going to be available. If you want to throw your hat in the ring, so to speak, uh, for these scholarships, shoot me an email at david at com and describe uh, briefly why you should be awarded one of these two seats. Submissions are due Friday, May 11th. That's Friday, May 11th is the last day for submissions, and the winner will be announced on Monday, May 14th. Thanks again to CAP and IEW for making these seats possible. Again, it's classicalu.com and IEW.com slash start to learn more about their programs. All right, let's get you over to this week's episode of Close Reads. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Circe Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and, well, usually I'd be joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. But this week I am joined just by Angelina Stanford. Um, Tim is off doing things. I'm not entirely <laughs> what he's doing. But all I know is that he couldn't make time for, for you, our listeners. <laughs> 
No, Tim's got things going on. He's very busy. This has been kind of a crazy week. I was out of the office Tuesday through Thursday. And um, Angelina's out in Colorado and Tim's back in Seattle. So it's crazy. So we are squeezing in. Uh, we are squeezing in a little closer each time because we love our listeners and we don't, we wouldn't, we wouldn't wish that kind of, you know, that kind of a, we wouldn't wish a week off um, because <laughs> we don't want to trigger anyone's abandonment issues right now. <laughs> right. Or, or like cause anyone to have like withdrawal issues or anything like that. So we are going to go ahead and press forward. We've squeezed, we've squeezed in a little bit of close reads time. Angelina, you are in Colorado for the kindred conference. Give us the lowdown on what Colorado looks like in the three hours of daytime that you have seen. <laughs> Yes, well, I got in last night, so I haven't seen much. I haven't seen much except for Heidi's backyard. So, but okay. we're we're going exploring today. So, I'm, I think I'm going to get the Colorado uh, experience later. But it's cold. It was uh, in the very low 30s when I got up, and then I asked. I went to ask my hostess, "Was my weather app lying to me? Horrible, vicious lies?" Because the weather app said snow in the next 120 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> It's May. Vicious lies. It's May. And then <laughs> her husband said, well, it snowed yesterday, so it could snow again today. I was like, I did not dress appropriately. <laughs> you were like, it's May, so I'm going to dress as one dresses in May. But that's how that, Fool that, that reveals I am. <laughs> yeah. What? That, that just reveals to me that you clearly need a Jeeves. Oh, there's no question. Contingencies. Oh, yes. No, uh, I really was missing Jeeves when I was packing. <laughs> Have you thought about your daughter? Could she possibly become B or Jeeves? She could. She was, really could. And she'd be way more bossy than Jeeves. Jeeves just silently manipulates behind the scenes to get his <laughs> way. She, she, would, she would be even less kind than Jeeves when she asked, are you planning to wear that? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Jeeves, we are... Uh, yeah, you. Uh, what was the line? Um, sometimes it feels like trousers don't matter. It, it will pass. That's right. That, she would just, <laughs> rather than saying it will pass, sir, the feeling will pass, sir, she would just openly mock you to your face. Pretty much. Um, gee, I wonder where she gets that from. Um, <laughs> um, so we are here to do part three of our three-part conversation on the code of the Woosters. Tim will be back. I mean, one can assume for the uh, for the Q and A conversation we are going to have next week about this book. Uh, if you have questions, we will, as always, post a thread on our Facebook page. If you don't know how to get to that Facebook page and are not a member of it, you can just go over to Facebook and type in Close Reads in the search bar and that group will pop up. You can be, you can join and then you can uh, partake in the miracle that is the conversations happening over there. Um, do you think that's an overstatement? That might be overstatement. I don't know. They're a very interesting like tight-knit community it started off where we would make inside jokes and they didn't get it but now they're making inside jokes to each other that i don't get yeah i don't know i don't i don't have any idea what's going on over there um <laughs> they've got a very lively community but we've, we've got just edged right out <laughs> <laughs> that's perfectly fine because we get to talk here on the show we still have the power right um so because it's all about power um as sir Watkin bassett would attest um but um so tim will be back next week you can put your questions there if you're not on facebook or don't wish to be on facebook or are taking a step back from facebook then i can't blame you and you can email me uh, at david at cerciinstitute.com and we can uh happily include your your question in the list um i've liked the last couple of shows where we were able to kind of go through a bunch of questions so i think we're gonna kind of stay with that that way 
you know, the, we've been getting, a, you know, what, 50, 60, 70 questions for some of those shows. And I, I don't, you know, I like to get to as many as we can and get as many questions answered and as many people's names on the air as possible. So as long as we're talking about the Facebook page, though, I do want to draw everyone's attention if you're on Facebook to one person's post. Did you see the post where it was the link to basically an annotation of the Code of the Worcesters and it went through every chapter and marked every literary reference, historical reference? It was awesome. And it, it really was starting to open up the book for a lot of people who were not catching the jokes because they didn't, they didn't know what line Birdie was messing up on purpose or actually, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Woodhouse was messing it up on purpose. Birdie was anyway. So th- that really helped people to catch onto the humor to see what all the references were that he was making Woodhouse was. Well, that brings up something. I don't, this wasn't something I was planning to talk about today, but do you, do you find that, um, Woodhouse is is um, less funny when you don't know all the inside jokes. Speaking of inside jokes. Well, I mean, I don't claim to catch all of them. But when I started looking, I thought I did pretty well. And then when I started scrolling through the annotated version, I was like, wow, I, <laughs> I'm not getting as many of these as I thought. And I still you know, think so, it's so funny, it you, though. It made it more funny for you to look at the all the annotations. Well, I don't know that it made it more funny, but I, I began to understand, um, like more specifically what Birdie was referencing. Um, okay. I think there's something about more, the setup. Yeah. Like I knew what, I don't, I don't know how to say this. Like the way Woodhouse set, we talked about this last time, the way he sets up the joke, I always knew it's a joke because right. of the way he sets it up and the way Birdie says it. I don't always get the particulars of the joke because I don't necessarily catch the line of poetry. Um, but I know it's a joke. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, cause it's funny that one of the things, you know, I asked, oh, man, was that the first episode we did on this or last week's where I said, what makes Woodhouse funny? Like what That was it? last week. Okay. And we talked about that for a while and we looked at some specific lines, but it's funny how rarely the inside joke portion of a joke is what gets mentioned. Um, or even like the setups is what gets mentioned. Cause so much of it is about one liners and like just being in the head of, of what house or of, <laughs> I cannot get those two straight of, of Worcester <laughs> himself, Worcester, Worcester. Like it's, it's being in so much of the humor just comes from how he, Birdie sees the world and you don't need to know all the inside jokes to, to enjoy being inside the nonsense that is the brain of Birdie, Birdie Wooster. <laughs> oh yeah, totally, totally. So I did mention last week though that we were going to talk about um, what is the code of the Woosters. Oh yeah, so we had that revealed, didn't we? And he does. He brings it up. So he, I mean, he he defines that you know the code of the Woosters is to you know do unto others, so to speak. Um, Never to, leave a friend hanging, right? Right, exactly. So um, <laughs> I was. I was gonna. I was thinking, like, does he, does he actually like? Is that it, when all these references throughout the book, but that he's talking about how he had to the stiff upper lip stuff and how he had to pull himself up by the bootstraps and how he had to endure, you know, this crazy house that he's in and all the drama and all the things that it's put him through. It seems like 
he has this very high view of this family. We've talked about how he talks about how he's they they sort of come from a line of Norman invaders, <laughs> <They follow laughs> all that kind of stuff. Do you um do you in the end see him as being in any way right in seeing himself and his family that way? Like, or is the humor that there is nothing to that? Or is the humor that there is something to that, but he actually is not able to live up to this code that he's talking about? So I was in other words, I was trying to figure out, like, is this code a real thing? Does he really care about it? Does he really live up to it? All that sort of stuff. That's a good question. Because, okay, let me just put this. On the surface, yes, he lives up to it because he does the sacrificial thing for his aunt. But... Is he in doing that? Is it actually is he actually living up to the code? Like it's basically just because he wants to keep eating good meals. Um, so like it seems like he's doing something sacrificial, but is he really doing something sacrificial? Well, he does do something sacrificial for Stiffy, and she's the one that appeals to the code. And he is, and I was surprised that he felt himself instantly bound by that and put up no fight. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, and so on the one hand, it is a ridiculous idea that the sh- the chivalry that he constantly talks about <laughs> and in that last section ton i mean he even references um the knight from chaucer in, yeah, yeah. in, in I, the I middle english so i laughed at that too in the middle english you know i'm the perfect gentle knight and uh you yeah, know there's a it, good in, there's a good inside joke that if you know that like just adds a little bit of humor to it ex- exactly exactly so um or at least it, it adds a little extra chuckle <laughs> yes exactly i mean you understand that he's appealing to chivalry even if you don't get every single uh, specific reference but so on the one hand it's ridiculous he's you know this isn't real chivalry um but on the other hand in fact uh, there, it's kind of oh go ahead go ahead well uh, on the other hand he really did do something self-sacrificial for stiffy he didn't get anything in return he did he actually felt bound by the code so i guess my answer is yes and no good answer <laughs> so one of the things that I talk about when I teach Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is that by the 14th century, when that story is made, chivalry had drastically changed and it was being criticized a great deal in art and in, in politics in the world because people felt like chivalry had lost its real virtue and was nothing but an elaborate set of manners. That's, that's all it was, was that being chivalrous just meant, you know, being elegant and flirtatious and, and right. witty right and so in that sense it, it's like a, is totally a relational thing tradition. yeah like he he is keeping up like the social requirements of the code but it, there's nothing real underneath so that's been mm. that's been going on in chivalry for a long time it was during the 14th century that you began to have honorary orders of knighthood bestowed on people um edward brought that back and um, that was an attempt to, I mean, it's so much like our own cultural conversation that it's really amazing, but people wanted to get back oh. to traditional values and they felt like traditional values were lost and, and, and there had been a breakdown in civilization because traditional values are lost. So in, in his, in the King of England's attempt to bring back these traditional values, he, he did a lot of like showy superficial rituals so creating different orders of knighthood giving making everybody a knight but nobody's really going to battle nobody's tested you know (laughs) it's like when the queen makes paul mccartney a knight i mean you know that's sir watkin bassett exactly exactly so i mean 
in that Which sense, means you're a very important person. Right. And in that sense, Bertie Wooster is in a long line of people who are holding on to a code that doesn't really mean anything anymore. In some ways, in some ways that this sort of chivalry that, that Bertie espouses or, you know, pretends that he's participating in is, it, it's almost like a form of low key misogyny in some ways. <laughs> I've um, never struck a woman. I'll have you know. <laughs> except the time when I did, when I was a six-year-old, and I did strike my. Um, but he's my always nerves. talking about how, like, you know, the fair sex is so incapable and causing so many problems and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's why we need to be not kind to them because they're incapable. <laughs> but really, it's like all these women who are, other than Jeeves, the women are the ones who are capable. Like, look at all his aunts who are quite capable. Like, the women are the only ones who actually do things other oh, than, right, right. other than. Um, like cooks and butlers and things like that. All the men, I mean, I guess Watkin Bassett was a magistrate or whatever, and you've got policemen and stuff, but they're basically incapable of actually being successful at anything. And it's Aunt Dahlia who gets things done. And it's, you know, I mean, the women are all perfectly ridiculous as well, but um, he, he has this sense of, of his duty that is born out of basically a, a, um, an ingrained view of of women that is uh, mm, limited, <laughs> shall, I, <laughs> shall we say? Um, and it's funny how that plays itself out, and how like even Jesus is the one who's like who, who will say things much more supportive of of people of of people around him, and 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 who is like deferring to other people's skills. He's like, you should let this person do it this way. His idea is almost always let someone else do something and don't do it yourself. Whereas Bertie's <laughs> like, I can do anything I want. You know, I'm very, because I'm capable. But also he doesn't want to be bothered. Bertie. Right. Bertie, Bertie right. wants a life of leisure. Yeah. All of those, yeah. all of those. I can do anything, but I won't. Yeah. And all those recurring lines of just when I thought I was going to be able to sit in my room by myself, like. <laughs> there's <laughs> another knock yeah. at the door someone crawling through the window like he just yeah, wants exactly. his leisure time to do nothing i mean there's a lot of there he are a lot of stories where, while he's resting well that's true but there's also a lot of stories where the running joke is that he's sitting with an improving book but he doesn't oh, yeah. actually read it <laughs> <laughs> yeah the book it starts out kind of rough and then as it's going on it's getting a little bit better <laughs> <laughs> i love how they always call it an improving book Somebody should. I, I wish Wood, Woodhouse had done a um, Adventures of Young Bertie Wooster. Like, what was Bertie Wooster like as a ten year old? Oh yes, or the college years. We could get some fan fiction going about that. <laughs> so one of the things I thought about contest among the readers. How's this for a total segue? You know, I went to see The Marriage of Figaro a few weeks ago, and. Like I do, I of course like read a bunch of stuff about it before I went to see it. I read the libretto because I knew it was going to be in Italian, and I wanted to make sure I understood the story. And I read a few things about it, and 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 so okay, just hang with me. See where I'm going with this. <laughs> in that story, um, you've got um, an aristocratic class who are portrayed as inept and corrupt, mm -hmm. uh, and the servant classes are the ones who resolve the conflict, have a sense of virtue, get things done, and are much more capable. As a result, the emperor of Austria had initially banned Mozart from performing the marriage of Figaro because he said it was so 
revolutionary and unsettling and that it was too much of an attack on the aristocracy. And given the fact that you've got, you know, the French revolution about to break out in France and that these are, you know, perilous times, he felt that the book, that the play was way too dangerous in the fact that it would stir people up against the aristocracy. Uh, and Mozart made the case that it was just a comedy. It was a farce, you know, don't read too much into it. And I thought that that was an Really interesting counterpart to our discussion yesterday about is it just humor? Is there more than humor? Because in a lot of ways, P.G. Woodhouse is doing the same thing, that the servant class comes off capable and steady and, uh, you know, low-level uh, condescending almost. <laughs> I mean, Jeeves has the feudal spirit, but there's no question that Jeeves is Bertie's boss. You know, that that twisted the end where he's like, okay, hey, you can buy the tickets. He's like, they've already been purchased, sir. Right, that's right. an on, that's yep, every story yep. ends like that. If they're fighting over the trumpet, the trumpet has been disposed of. If it's a jacket, of course, I got rid of it this morning. Like Jeeves has always got his own agenda. Someone on the Facebook page had described him as the long suffering servant. That is not, that's not right. who Jeeves is. Jeeves comes out of a long line of comic characters. You see it in Shakespeare. It's in the marriage of Figaro of the scheming servant, the one who can resolve all the conflict and is really kind of the brains behind the whole thing. And he's maneuvering all these members of the aristocracy who are rather, rather clueless. So with that marriage of Figaro fresh in my mind, reading this book, I say, I saw the same kind of things that is comic. It is a farce, but it's all, I mean, the, the aristocracy really does come off looking really bad. And, and the fact that they all run to Jeeves to solve the problems yeah, and, you, and, and yeah, the butler was the other one in this case who, who, who played a role in, in figuring things out as well. It's funny that Woodhouse kind of flips the, you know, the butler as the potential murderer trope. Yeah, where Bertie out. says it's probably the butler. He did it. <laughs> but he flips it. You know, the butler is the one who who can help resolve the things. Who mm -hmm. he's sort of scheming and clever, and you know, in his own way. But it's usually to the with the with the end in mind of creating resolution as opposed to creating chaos. Do you think that, uh, that Jeeves respects Bertie? Wow. Or, and then a follow-up question, do you think that he uh, likes or loves Bertie? I think that he treats Bertie like a child, but I think that Bertie needs to be treated like a child. And I do think he has genuine affection for Bertie. In a lot of the stories, he talks about that he feels lucky to have the position he has. Yeah that it's a, it's a good position that, and, and this is contrasted with other valets and their bad positions and that they don't have a good young man, which I think what he means by that is that they're not controllable. You know, so he, Jeeves has an easy situation and the fact that he gets this to travel the world, which is what he wanted the whole way is, is yeah. evidence that Jeeves, yeah. Jeeves does all right. And in fact, one of the motifs of many of the stories are not, although not this one is that Jeeves does not want Bertie to get married. Because right. introducing a woman in the mix is going to mess things up for Jeeves and, and change his life. I, I do yes, think he does he everything has he can to help. Yes, uh, help Bertie out of the soup. avoid getting tied down. <laughs> Absolutely, which Bertie doesn't want to, so it all works out. But there's that. Well, there's that one where he does want to marry Bobby Wickham, and Jeeves is Jeeves is against it. But um, and then of course Jeeves turns out to be right that Bobby Wickham was awful. So I, I, I do sense genuine affection. Bertie absolutely has affection for Jeeves and Jeeves has affection for Bertie. And I, I, it depends how you define respect. I do believe Jeeves has the feudal spirit and knows that to be respectful of his, what would we call him? 
Jeeves is his man, what would Bertie be? His lord? I'm not sure. Yeah, something like that. They're, um, they're each other's men. Right, exactly. Um, I guess he does kind of call him his man in other stories when he's talking about other valets and their positions. But um, yeah, like I don't think he respects him on like this personal level, like we, we think of where, you know, we meet someone and we think, man, I really have a lot of respect for that person. I think Jeeves would have a very futile understanding of respect. I, I believe Jeeves thinks that Bertie's position in life demands respect and that that's, that's appropriate. Do you think then that, that, um, that Jeeves buys into this sort of code of chivalry that, that Bertie claims to buy into and that Jeeves sees it as his role to, uh, empower birdie to fulfill that or to make sure that he fulfills it is another i guess is another oh yeah i know that's an insightful comment i absolutely think that's what he's that's what he's doing in fact jeeves has a much higher code than birdie does that, that comes through i think in, a, in the, the discussions about clothing um because <laughs> yeah. yeah birdie always wants like the newest fashion and jeeves is always that's not a that's not an appropriate look for this event like we don't think about clothes that way at all but he birdie always has different suits for different events so no you can't wear that suit in the train and you can't wear that suit to dinner and that's not an appropriate golf outfit and it's so his role to maintain the standards that the tradition has has, has sort of created and, or evolved i think so I think that's how Jeeves sees himself. We should have, I should have um, thought of this ahead of time. We should have done remains of the day after this book because it's kind of about that, but it's about a Butler who's living in the same time who goes on a road trip essentially because of his sort of roles falling apart. Um, This is a book that Graham has read and uh, Graham had just walked in. He just, he just joined us. He's filling in for Tim here for a second. Hey Graham. (laughs) How's it going? So, I hear the fear in your voice. It's going to be okay. Just relax. <laughs> How come you never come into the office anymore? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. We right don't, now, we I mean, don't actually see you. you. We just hear your voice. I like to keep up a certain air of mystery. All right. I'll come by. Angelina. Okay. Did you just say you like to keep up an air of mystery? <laughs> I did. <laughs> Why is that funny? Why am I laughing? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not laughing. Um, do you know? Do you know why you hear the the timber of fear in my voice, Angelina? <laughs> no. Because I got asked to come on this podcast, and I've never read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have to say that our our pregame texting this morning was some of my all time favorite that we've ever had. Where David just says, "Okay, Graham's going to fill in for Tim," and Graham says, "I haven't read this book." <laughs> His his exact words were something like, "Though I have never read the book, what, what did you say? It was a Lord of the Rings line." Um, no, one does not simply walk into close range. <laughs> That's <laughs> that true. That was great. It, it, I which is a very was, factual. I was, I was drinking my coffee and I was like thinking to myself, "Graham is on Spark Notes right now." He's, he's <laughs> reading. No, uh, are you kidding? No prep. If we did Lord of the Rings, <laughs> Graham wouldn't need any prep. Um, uh, no, I meant for this book for Woodhouse. So, Graham, you have not read uh, The Code of the Woosters. You've really never read Code of the Woosters? No. You've read all that Woodhouse, but you've never read Code of the Woosters? Yep. So I'm just going to ask a lot of questions. Well, I've, I've, I do want to ask so you, you a question. So you don't read along with the podcast? Now now the truth comes out. <laughs> Some, sometimes. Oh, wait. Do people do that? Um <laughs> One does not I think it feels like just person. hearing. I think it feels like just hearing your end of the conversation, David, is enough to just fill in. Probably what we were all. He could just like imagine what I said and Tim said. 
so, maybe, maybe. So what excuse did you give for Tim not being here? <laughs> that he stole a cow creamer and had to leg it. <laughs> <laughs> that, which is a reference Graham does not get. So, oh. <laughs> oh, I, I've seen the cow creamers going on. Oh, yeah. So have you seen, did, have you ever watched the um, Hugh Laurie BBC series of, uh, like the TV series of, of the Jeeves and, and no. Birdies? Okay. Mm-mm. Oh, well, you have to, Graham. It's so good. I know. I, lo- I love those guys. I, I don't know. No, it, that, that's a blind spot for me. Okay, it's on YouTube. Seriously, I know you don't do anything at work, but YouTube. <laughs> Pop that on. You're going to love it. You will not be disappointed. It's so good. I, I'm excited to get into it. So, like, growing up in Canada, we watched, like... BBC. All the English stuff yeah, because it was, it was the law. It was on all the time, but <laughs> for some reason, that one didn't make it. Did you watch Faulty Towers? No, that didn't make it either. Yeah, well, I mean, there's no reason to watch that. Um, so, Grandma, uh, you you do like Woodhouse? Yeah. Um, I am. When Graham and I used to live together, he would regularly fall asleep while reading, while taking the bath, and it would flood the bathroom, and his book would fall okay. in. So- and so, usually, it was a Woodhouse book or a C.S. Lewis book. So, um, <laughs> I do not like this blatant destruction of literature. I object. I don't like walking right into this conversation. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. So, but you do love Woodhouse. So yeah. one of the questions we've talked about is what makes Woodhouse so funny? So you haven't read this particular book, but in your recollection or your experiences with Woodhouse, what, what about him makes him funny? Because mm. we were talking about how people on, someone posted on, the Facebook page that that thing with all the like the annotated code of the Woosters. I don't know if you saw that. Angelina was no. mentioning it. So someone posted it and it's a, a document or a, or a web page that has an annotations of all the inside jokes, essentially all the lines. And we we're talking about how it helps make it helps kind of make it extra funny. It adds that extra little level of humor. Right. But you can get find Woodhouse extremely funny even if you don't get any of the references, um, or sure. at least most of the references. Um, so what in your mind is it that specifically makes uh, P.G. Woodhouse so funny? That makes it so funny that people will come back to him for generations or have been anyway. Um, I think uh, in this, well, specifically with like Birdie, or I guess a lot of his characters, they're so um, not out of it, but they're... they're Incapable? Yeah, they have... They have the airs of aristocracy, um, but not really the the mind power to back it up. So I think I, I, the way he plays with language, I think, is just hilarious. Um, people using the wrong words all the time, and then you have you always have the contrast of the capable person, which in these stories would be Jeeves and Birdie. I'm sure you guys have talked all through this already, but. Um, yeah, we talked about how the uh, the only people who are capable are the people who are the working class. Yeah, so he's he's a skewer, skewerer, skewerer, skewerer. skewer. <laughs> um, yeah. When I first read the first one, I read was Mulliner Knights. So Mister Mulliner. Um, I think there's three, three books. Um, that have him. Have you read those, Angelina? I have not. Oh, you you have to. That's the that's the one I was trying to tell you guys about, where it's like he's sitting in a club or something, right? And he's telling stories in a pub. In a pub. Yeah, I mean, in my defense, PG Woodhouse has written like a thousand books. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I've read a lot of them, but I haven't read those. I'll look those up. Yeah, he sits in a pub and just tells stories, um, and no one else has names 
in the pub. They're just like referenced by what they drink. I'm glad you're bringing this up because one of my questions for the show for both of you is going to be what's the next Woodhouse people should read. So I, I would recommend one of those. So I, I think it's the first one might be Mr. Mulliner and then something else. Let's just call the next one Mulliner Goes to Town. Keep talking, I shall Google. Um, and then Mulliner Nights. Uh, so those were the first ones I read. And I was reading probably like Crime and Punishment and uh, like <laughs> so Dante. thematic reading. Yeah. So I was reading Dostoevsky and Dante and then got my first taste of Woodhouse, like right in the middle of it. And it was just fantastic. It was like the 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 perfect breath of fresh air. Um and I got probably two percent of the references at the time. Um but I still what percentage it. are you up to now? At least three. Um, <laughs> but Angelina, had you read Woodhouse before? Yes. Oh, yes. I've, I've okay. read all the Birdie and Jeeves books and I've read some of the other novels he did. My favorite, though, is Smith. The P is silent. He, he's my favorite. I, it's so I more love, fun to call him P. Smith, though. It is fun to call him P. Smith. Uh, he's my favorite. Now, he, he's, he's a lot like Birdie, but he doesn't have a, a valet. Um, the thing about, okay, so it's a lot of the same themes about where does the aristocracy fit in with the ever-changing world. And it, it, and also, you know, Bertie talks about, I don't remember if it's in this book or one of the short stories about how I heard about a guy getting a job once and I just, that didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And of course now that's a, that's difficult. That's a, that's a difficult line for Americans to understand, but being a gentleman by definition, a gentleman did not have a job. And the reason for that was because his job in the feudal system was to run the manor. So he did have a job. His job was to take care of the land and take care of the people. Right. And then you have the, the rising CEO. middle class and the whole thing changes and suddenly land doesn't have value anymore. And the aristocrats are all broken. But a gentleman does not get a job. And so in this sense, Bertie's a little bit trapped by the, the code of chivalry in that, you know, he, he's trained to do nothing. The one thing that he would have been trained to do doesn't even exist anymore because Bertie lives in an apartment. I don't know if we've really thought about that. So he doesn't have a feudal home. He does. Everybody has these feudal manners and these family homes. Bertie does not. Bertie lives in an apartment. So he's very um, disenfranchised, right, from his any kind of meaningful existence. So he's just, he's just, you know, a leisured class with nothing to do with his leisure. But the thing about Smith is he's also a filthy rich aristocrat whose day has come, but he flirts with socialism and calls everyone comrade while he's filthy rich. And it's just hilarious. And so his name is Smith, but he changes it to P Smith. The P is silent because he didn't want such a dreary name. He wanted some excitement. And so he's very flamboyant and over the top and he gets a job in one of the books, leave it to Smith. He gets a job. I think as a librarian cataloging some guy's library and he just gets into all kind of trouble because he tries to be a socialist <laughs> and he's, he's not, he's totally privileged. And <laughs> I, yeah, I, li I like him a lot. He's my favorite. He doesn't understand socialism. Is it, is it Smith who's, who lives in a feudal house, but it's like falling apart? Oh, I don't remember. One of them does. I, I thought it was, I don't remember us being at his home very much. He's like living in the city. I think he has an apartment too. Hmm. But there's one where he goes back to school and has that cricket match. There's Smith in the city, leave it to one. Smith and Mike and Smith. Have, have either of you guys read uh, Jeeves in the Morning? I don't always the know novel. them by name. The novel, yeah. yeah, I don't either. I have, I have like an omnibus of... 
a bunch of them. Yeah, I have a collection too. I, d- I don't always know their names. That's the um, that's an Aunt Agatha one and Lord Warpleston. So, do you have a favorite? Steeple Bumpley, Angelina, and David. Of, of any Woodhouse, do you have a favorite? Oh, oh, Smith is definitely my favorite. Okay. Uh. Hmm. You. What's your favorite? This is honestly, Code of the Woosters might be my one of okay. my favorites. But I'll. Woodhouse is a master at writing short stories. So, like, if you were to get um. Uh, what was uh, my man Jeeves, which is the first collection? Um, I want to say there's twelve stories in that, mm-hmm. something like that. I have that one. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think I think the Mulliner ones are my favorite, and it might be. I'm this- gonna check those out. That sounds great. Oh, uh, there's in Mulliner Nights. There's um, like the first story that got me is I think it's called the story of Webster or something like that. Uh, it's about this bohemian painter who's just living the life, but then he has to uh, take on these cats that a relative gives him, um, and and the cats lead him into such a, a different life by their scorn and by their haughty looks that he changes into like a completely different man by the end of it. So I would I would recommend that as a good as a good next one to get into that sounds great if people want more jeeves and and birdie you don't have to worry about reading them in order or anything yeah, you can right, read them right. all out of order um but some of the ones some of the short stories that are really fun are when birdie goes to america because then you've got yeah. a lot of interesting contrast between america and their new money and the old aristocratic values i don't and, think there are any novels in america though are there uh, not that i know of they're all the short stories Mm-hmm. I forget what happens that Bertie gets into some kind of soup and has to leg it to America to get away from Aunt Agatha for a while. Isn't that think, it? And then I think, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's in Carry On Jeeves, which I, which probably is the best of the collections. Guys- so yeah, so Bertie ends because it's prohibition in America. So Bertie gets uh, just in so many scrapes. <laughs> By trying to be English. And then also adopts all kind of crazy American fashion, which Jeeves strongly objects to. And then Bertie goes out West. So, I mean, he's dealing with like New York families and then he goes out West and deals with like Colorado. And so it's just really funny to put Although at the time, the West is probably like Illinois, like in the Great Catsby. Go ahead, (laughs) Graham. No, but he takes a train way out West, doesn't he? And that's when he comes back with the Western wear and Jeeves is like, no. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. So was Woodhouse familiar with America then? I mean, is this a, a transition for him after he had come I, here or visited or something like I that? I don't know. I think he lived in New York for a while. Okay. Um, and do you guys know, was he ultra popular uh, in his time? Or well, did his popularity grow? I know, I know most people that are verbose in their writing either are popular or they do it out of necessity. Um, I I know he's more popular now than he was then, but I think that's probably true of a lot of authors who are popular, just because more books are sold and bought now. Mm-hmm. Um, I I my understanding is he was he was he was certainly well known and like lived comfortably because of it, but he also lived comfortably anyway. <laughs> so, do you know Angelina? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I I just always assumed he was popular because he sold so many screenplays. Yeah, he wrote. 
he he wrote a lot um but i don't know if I mean, I haven't done the deep dive. Yeah. I haven't done that Wikipedia deep dive on yeah. uh, No, I have not. I imagine his audience would eat this stuff up. Okay, Did so, you guys... Oh, go ahead. Well, it says here that in the years after the war, World War I, he steadily increased his sales, polishing his existing characters and introducing um, new ones. Bertie and Jeeves, Lord Emsworth and his circle, and Eucharidge appeared in novels and short stories during that time, and Smith made his fourth and last appearance. So Smith was a little earlier, and then he mm-hmm. turned his attention towards Birdie. That's what I thought. So I thought he's kind of a prototype for Birdie. He's not then, quite as inept as, as Birdie. And then Moliner appeared a little bit later. Um, and they, the a lot of the golf... The golf stories are incredible. Yeah, those are great. If you can find that, that on yeah, the golf... Yeah, I have the golf omnibus. That's Yo, we talked about this when we did the Dorothy Sayers book, but it might be a good idea to bring it up again now that we have some Jeeves under our belts. Um, but Bertie and Jeeves are the prototype for Lord Peter and Bunter. It's very deliberate. Um, she references P.G. Woodhouse and Jeeves in many of the stories. And then I saw a few people on Facebook this week had had pointed that out um, and taken screenshots of her references. So she was a fan and she's very deliberate. She does some interesting things with it because with the Bertie and Jeeves setup, um, it fits into Lord Peter's um, fake identity, right? That he's just this bumbling idiot aristocrat. And he does that so that he can disarm people and really solve the clues and, and, and all of that. But so having the Bertie and Jeeves set up in the British people's minds is part of how Lord Peter is able to disarm people because he does, he looks like Bertie and it looks like Bunter is Jeeves, but really Lord Peter's the one calling the shots and he's very, very intelligent. Um, but, but yeah, so just fun to realize that these authors are connected and, uh, and that she was, she was playing within the Jeeves and, and Worcester, um, you know, set up the comedy duo idea uh, for her own purposes. So that was a lot of fun. And, and for me, um, uh, PG Woodhouse is one of my go-to authors when I get into a reading slump, you know, how we all go through those times where I just feel like I'm not reading very much and I just need yep. to get back in my groove. Woodhouse is one of my go-to books cause it's, it's light and it's funny and I can, you know, that's not, you don't pick up Dostoevsky to get out of a reading funk. Dostoevsky might put you into a reading funk <laughs> yeah, just well, because it's so, so demanding. You need something that gets you in the habit of turning pages. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly right. So Woodhouse and Sayers are actually two of my go-to authors for that, but they're, they're fun and they're literary, but they don't make tons of demands on me. It's the kind of thing I can read in between. It's what um, I do crime fiction for that. Yeah, I can see that too. Do you, Graham, what's your uh, reading funk? Reading Funk should be the name of your newest album, Graham. <laughs> um, honestly, I do Woodhouse for that as well. I, anytime I'm in a reading funk, I'm going for something short so usually, or, or, or something funny. So short story collection, um, even if I'm just reading the first one or two, just kind of like a uh, defibrillator jumpstart. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's you're probably- right. Like Dostoevsky, probably not not the way to go. <laughs> Unless you're feeling ultra. Yeah, I'm in a reading funk. What thousand page Russian novel would you recommend to get me <laughs> to help me get out? But you know, I'm glad we're talking about reading funks. I think we need to dispel a little bit of the mystique of what the reader's life is like because some of our listeners may go through that and feel like that's some kind of character flaw or imagine that we are all always walking around with a thousand page tome. No, we are not. There are plenty of times where I go through a season of 
life is just super intense. And so I'm keeping up with the reading from my classes, but I'm really not reading more than that. Yeah. Most so of the time I, I'm like finishing these pages 10 seconds before we record. Yeah. I go through seasons where I'm just reading and reading and reading and then seasons where I'm in a funk and I think, wow, I need to, I need to pick up a book. Yep. Hey, um, I did. I'm, I've been, uh, looking at Wikipedia here while you were talking and I'm <laughs> to listen to you. No, what you have house? to say something like your research staff. <laughs> <laughs> My crack research staff in the back room, eh? They, um, they were in the back room. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh Yeah. <laughs> So exactly. My I know you're your research iPhone, is. He's with me right now. So <laughs> my iPhone research staff. Uh, Woodhouse in the 30s was the peak of his popularity. He was writing two books a year, and he Good was grossing grief. an annual salary of 100,000 pounds, which obviously Whoa. at the time that was pretty good. Wow. Um, I don't know what that is in dollars in 2018. You know, that brings up a really interesting point because I have to do some math. That's, I, that's I struggle point. myself with the relationship between popularity and quality. You know, like I have a, I have a little bit of a snobbish default where if something's too popular, I just assume it can't be very good. But then, you know, my brain kicks in and I think, well, no, Shakespeare was popular in common entertainment. Dickens was popular in common entertainment. So, I mean, it, there are those rare authors who can pull off making something of real quality and value and it's somehow captures the culture's imagination. And I can see Woodhouse totally that way that he operates on many levels. In fact, several of the people, this really speaks to Woodhouse's brilliance. Several people on the Facebook page said they started reading it as family read alouds and all of their kids were laughing, even though there was a huge variety of what kind of jokes they got with the youngest kids, just laughing at the kind of slapstick stuff and the trouble birdie gets into. I mean, that's a really hard thing to pull off to have something operate on so many levels that such a variety of people can, can laugh. And it's also hard. It's so hard to write funny. It's so, it's so much easier to make people cry than laugh. It's almost, it's $1.4 million. And then in pounds, that's 1,000 or 1,034,908 pounds. So he was doing okay. Nobody checked my math. (laughs) (laughs) So since I haven't read this book at all, what else are you guys reading? You mean in our lives or on the show? Not on the show, in the, in the lives. Angelina, what else are you reading? Uh, on the plane, I started The Awakening of Miss Prim, which several people on the Facebook page were talking about and Cindy Rollins had recommended to me, and mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it. So that's a, that's a newer book. I'm going out of my way to try to ramp up my exposure to contemporary literature. I'm trying to cure my reverse chronological snobbery. <laughs> I don't, I don't People rec- will be dead eventually. I don't recognize that. <laughs> title what does the cover look like oh i don't know i'm reading it on the kindle oh come on <laughs> i'm on a plane no, graham, my- graham doesn't do titles he just does book covers so when we talk no, that's, about them, we have to- that is very true that's very true huh. um just, it's I a just, short book it's about oh, it's it's really interesting it's about a village of basically intellectual refugees who want to resist modernity and the lives that they craft hmm. so not sure how to respond to your so you know jeeves you have a way of saying yes sir that sounds like says you (laughs) (laughs) so do you so what's your verdict so far well i mean i'm only maybe like uh, about halfway through but i'm enjoying it see the problem with reading a book on kindle is you have to read the whole thing to judge it (laughs) as opposed to other books i don't understand as opposed to judging it by its cover (laughs) oh 
<laughs> well, the Kindle books now come with a cover. It's yeah, it's, a, it's a white cover with like some floral swirls. <laughs> oh, okay. Why? Why do you ask? What are you it reading? It sounds like you just skipped right right over it. <laughs> yeah, you didn't pay attention at all. <laughs> what are you reading, Graham? Uh, I am reading um, Romeo and Juliet. I am reading Return of the King. What else? Just a bunch of crap, huh? I've got. I've got. He's I'm obviously gonna, in a funk. <laughs> I'm one of those people who has that bedside table that's just like a nightmare, where. So you cover it with books. It's <laughs> the stack of books on the table is a nightmare because it's 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 like the Leaning Tower of Pisa type thing. So <laughs> I'm I'm like twenty percent into about ten books. But those two, I'm probably going to finish up pretty soon. Uh, what else? What are you reading? A spoiler alert, um, Romeo and Juliet has a sad ending. <laughs> yeah, I've heard. <laughs> I've heard. Have you ever read it before? School? No. Mm-mm. No, this year, this year I've been very intentional about kind of mapping out my reading. So I'm doing, Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm doing three Shakespeare plays. It might turn into five because that... They're so enjoyable. and Because the previous ones were so boring, you had to figure out what the big deal is. <laughs> I'm reading three Ibsens. Um, so 2018 is the year of the drama for you? I was just thinking yeah, that. It might be, because I'm doing three uh, Greek, Greek the th- plays. The Theban plays? Yep. And then um, Lord of the Rings. I want to do three Nabokovs. I want to do... It's the year three as well. Apparently so. Um, three McCarthy's. And then I want to revisit a lot of stuff. So usually I get like 25 books a year, which isn't very good. And this year I'm aiming for 60. Um, oh, so are you throwing down the challenge to Cindy Rollins? No, never. Um, <laughs> and the, that, that, but that plays help or anything, you know, anything, anything small. Short. I'm starting to realize like that actually builds your momentum instead of just slogging through the classics. Yeah, for um, sure. I don't know. Oh, I'm, yeah, definitely. What is your, what would you say is, this is for both of you, what would you say is the biggest gap in your reading life that you want to uh, just sort of fix? Oh, that's easy for me, modern. Modern, like you you throw around a lot of modern guys and that's I've like not read them. super general, Angelina. Yeah, that... Mm. Oh, well, I'm, I'm no, but I mean, modern the modern time period. So I haven't read a ton of Hemingway or Faulkner oh, yeah, yeah, or okay. Fitzgerald. Like, I, <laughs> I have, I've read, I've read at least one by each. Like, I did read The Sun Also Rises. I have read The Great Gatsby. Um, and I read but, the but years ago, right? Yes, all years ago. So, yeah, I, I, I have a big, a big gap there where I just haven't read, read very widely. I mean, I feel like I kind of hit the, hit the basics there. Yeah. In fact, my yeah, my my super contemporary, I might be a little more up to date on than the actual modern period. Oddly right. enough, but that's because I've been intentional about it. That like about what three years ago, I posted on Facebook and I was like, "Tell me what contemporary author to read." I, mean, I didn't even know where to start. Yeah. I had no clue. Yeah, but yeah. fortunately, like people like Cindy, um, you know, are very up to date. Had plenty of authors and gave me a good list, and I started whittling away at that. At least you read Wendell Berry. You yes, I did do him. that a long time ago, um, and I'm really looking forward to starting up Hannah Coulter again. So yeah, he's a he's a contemporary author who I've really liked. So yeah, I would say that that modern 20th century P 
period, that lost generation, I'm not super well read with those guys. What, what, what did you say, Graham? Um, I, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on board with you, Angelina. Um, Hemingway is a struggle for me. Um, and so I gave that up a long time ago. So it's probably time to revisit. Um, I've really never read much Dickens. Um, Faulkner. This is, see, this is getting embarrassing. If I, I could, I could make a big list. Oh, never apologize for not reading much Dickens. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, everybody's got, everybody's got reading gaps. Plus he's just not very good. <laughs> well, he's a, he's a long-term commitment. That's for sure. <laughs> People, my, my, uh, the fact that I publicly say that Dickens isn't good is becoming something I kind of have to live up to. So I have to drop <laughs> it, like at least once an episode, I have to talk about how bad Dickens is. I do feel I like if you've read one Dickens novel, you've read them all. And Thank I know that you. people will gasp about that, but I really do think that. I mean, it doesn't mean you shouldn't read the other ones. Right. But... And I've read David Copperfield like three times and I sobbed my way through that book every time. I read the first time when I was 12. But... Oh. oh, you know what I haven't read? David Copperfield? You haven't read any? No. You should. So you should go read Pride and Prejudice and then listen to our shows I on that. Yes, I. <laughs> you did listen to True Grit. You listened to a few of those episodes, right? Yep. Yeah, I read that book along. Oh, I'm reading. Um, I'm reading Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner. Hmm. I'm almost done. Do you like you, it? Y- yes. So people should be happy that we chose Crossing the Safety for. Uh, here we go. I'm excited about that. I have not never read any of him. I'm excited. Uh, Angle of Repose. Um was his Pulitzer Prize winner and Crossing to Safety was his final book. And I think Crossing to Safety is his like masterpiece. So good. There's a, that people. Of course he went to Stanford with Wendell Berry along with uh, Ernest Gaines. He he taught Wendell Berry and Ernest Gaines. He taught. Oh, wow. They went to the Stegner fellowship. Like they made. That's um, right. Berry claims that Stegner was one of the reasons why his uh his career took off all right before we go here we're, um let's let's finish with some final quotes from this last section that on on uh in the code of the wooster so okay here's Angelina. my favorite here's my favorite i'm just doing this okay, from memory I'm I don't Graham open the book and just I find just randomly pa- okay. the last 60 pages okay so this is when they're tying up everything in the last chapter and birdie has finally uncovered the mystery of Udele. <laughs> and I don't know how to say that only because I watched that episode. So you that is so funny. And so Bertie, and so this is what Bertie says. Hmm. Don't suppose you can be a dictator and design women's underclothing. No, sir. One or the other, eh, Jeeves? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I I do I do feel like Woodhouse is really good at just giving us principles to live by and if i've never heard of principles to live by it's that you can't be a dictator and a designer of women's undergarments no and that's of let course, it be a lesson to all of us that's right that's right <laughs> choose choose your black shorts <laughs> or your fine linen satin under things but you, not the same you didn't know that people didn't know that in the end uh pg woodhouse was going to rival aesop's fables for dropping <laughs> that's right that's right for, for a little marcus effort. aurelius the proverbs <laughs> Aesop's Fables and P.G. Woodhouse, I think, are your... That's your wisdom literature right there. We'll throw Solomon in the fifth. Because <laughs> <laughs> I did say Proverbs, though. Graham, find, touch, touch a sentence and read it. Just We'll see how funny it is. She rose and broke the elephant thoughtfully. 
of damage to that mantle. In his room, there's a mantle with all this china on it. Every time people would come in to talk to him and think about something, they would destroy something, and that was the last one. Wait, intentionally? Yeah. Yes. It's just like they were thinking they would throw it. So at the very end, when he's looking for a place to hide the cow creamer, um, Aunt Travers suggests that they pull a little Edgar Allan Poe purloin letter, and then Jeeves explains to Bertie that mm-hmm. that means hide it in plain sight and no one would see it. So perhaps they should just put the cow creamer on the mantle. And Bertie says, But it's so bare, everybody has broken everything, <laughs> broken everything on the mantle. <laughs> okay, one more. Touch, just touch a line. All right. Hold on. How long does it take to put your finger down on a page? Point in time. <laughs> You're asking a graphic designer. He's setting up the right lighting and composition. It's true, true. You take a photo of it. <laughs> He's Instagramming his finger on the page. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's one. Uh, thank you, Jeeves. What makes you suppose that I shall meekly assume the guilt and not blazon the truth forth to the world? That does sound like boy. Is that when he's blazing, threatening blazing the truth? I think he's threatening to blackmail to sue Sir Wyatt yeah, yeah, Bassett. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think that's where it is. Oh, it might be a little earlier, actually, when they were talking about um, whether he was going to take the blame uh, for um, what's his face? Oh, yeah. For um, for Stinker Pinker. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Here, Angelina, just start listing. Just start listing names, and let's listen to Graham laugh for a minute. Okay, Stinker Pinker, mm-hmm. my favorite. Barmy Fungi Fips. <laughs> Bingo Little. You're making Stiffy. these up. No, and Barmy Fungi Fips. We do need a random Fips. name generator that is based on Woodhouse. Though. Barmy Fungi Fips is is pronounced nothing like it's spelled. That's why it's so hilarious. It's either it's spelled fathering gay fips that's pronounced fungi fips and barmy fungi fips is super stupid he's just he He better be (laughs) yeah i mean they're all walking around just centuries of inbreeding and it just (laughs) you just see it they're so stupid so here's two lines that i really like he you know that whole uh mona lisa joke where like mona lisa is enduring the trials oh yes so he keeps bringing back to how like mona lisa sitting there looks like she's this is for graham looks like she's enduring the trials of the world or whatever and he's talking about how he his stiff upper lip thing you know booster always have has this thing where he's enduring the trials of the world as well so there's this part here where where, uh, gussie walks into his room all of a sudden and then the next chapter begins i stared at the man clutching the brow and rocking on my base off yes your wedding yes it's off Yes. What, what? Off? Yes. And then he says, I don't know what the Mona Lisa would have done in my place. Probably just what I did. Jeeves, I said, brandy. <laughs> okay. One of the other running jokes is that very early on in the book, Jeeves tells Bertie the story of Archimedes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which Bertie completely misses the point of that story and quotes it through the entire book. Like, so it, when, yeah, so when Gussie is very all, end. Yes, at the very end, he goes, Jeeves says, I had the chance to say Eureka. And he says, and Bertie's like, why? And he's like, sir, Archimedes. And Jeeves goes, oh, I thought that was Shakespeare. And Bertie's just like, uh. Yeah. So, so <laughs> Gussie is all heartbroken that his engagement is off. And Bertie says, oh, well, think of Archimedes. And he goes, what? He goes, oh, well, you know, he got killed by a plain soldier. And that probably wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> 
That's fantastic. <laughs> Here's another one. They're talking about how um, Gussie put his newts in the bathtub. Yes, Graham, there were newts in the bathtub. Graham's shaking his head. Because um, the full moon, duh. Because <laughs> he's trying to figure out the um, the romantic. If the full the romantic moon life. has an effect on the love life of the newt. Obviously, I guess. Yeah, yeah, as one does. So um, he says. Um, so he's walking. Bassett says, "You know, this, he gets mad at Gussie for putting newts in the bathtub." So he says, "You put newts in the bath." And and Gussie says yes, and then the narrator says, "Like a cr- keen cross-examining counsel, I swooped on the point. Why? <laughs> <laughs> it's these little like he sets himself up to say something amazing, and then it's yeah. just like one word. Why? Where or did, where, brandy. Where did he procure these newts? Oh, that's what oh he, he brought them with he him. He's he a he's a collector of newts. He oh, studies them. I see. As one does, I'm telling you. It's as take, one does. His, this this actually sounds like Birdie and Gussie's real thing. Like, where did you get the newts? And Birdie <laughs> and Gussie just keeps saying over and over, "My tank broke. The glass <laughs> tank in my bedroom it broke." Yes, but why are they in the bathtub? The tank broke. The glass <laughs> tank. The one in my bedroom it broke. And they just keep going in this loop. <laughs> okay, one more here. This is I think is this is the perfect for the ending of the book. <clears throat> um, they're dealing with some issue here and Jeeves and Wooster are finally, you know, Jeeves spends a lot more time talking in this third part of the book, which is nice because someone actually is not being nonsensical. Um, on these occasions when individual interests clash Jeeves, somebody has got to draw the short straw. Very true, sir. You can't expect it to be, to, he did, you can't expect it to, you can't be expected to dish out happy endings all around one per person. I mean, no, sir. The great thing is to get Gussie fixed. So buzz off, Gussie, and heaven speed your efforts. I lit a cigarette. A very sound idea, that Jeeves. How did you happen to think of it? It was the officer himself. Well, anyway, he goes on. I love this line. You can't be expected to dish out happy endings all around one per person, I mean. And then Woodhouse, from that point on, like structurally, he creates that tension. Like it's no longer about like the tension of what's going to happen to Jeeves because you know nothing's really going to happen to him. So then it's about how does the author unravel it? Um, and so then he, he's basically setting forth, it's going to be impossible for everyone to be happy. And so then you've got, then you get to watch Woodhouse craft an ending where everyone gets to be happy. And that's kind of the fun of a Woodhouse book. So structurally he creates this, he's going to do this meta discourse. Like no one does meta discourse quite like Woodhouse in my opinion, where he basically tells you what he's going to try to do now or what's coming. And you have to watch out for those, those little, um, those little spots where he does it because then that's what you get to watch, watch him do what you get to watch him create his own, like, well, you get to watch him spread all the pieces out on the table and then put them into something that's cohesive at the end. And I think that's one of the real pleasures of Woodhouse. It goes beyond the humor because he's not just a comedian. He's a humorist in the sense that he's a craftsman. And we talked about stand-up comedy last week and how they like a really good stand-up comedian is crafting a set. Like there's a structure to what he's doing. And I think Woodhouse is, Woodhouse is so good because he does that so well. And that's just like, he does okay, it. While you were talking, while you were talking, I got a crazy idea. Now I need to reread everything to see if it's true. <laughs> but it occurs to me that the people who are the losers in this book are the ones who violated the code. So Watkin Bassett violated the host host guest relationship. They make a big deal about you can't search somebody's room. This is this is too far. You can't do that. And then of course he gets humiliated because he did that and he loses everything, including the cow creamer. He comes out way worse than he started. 
Ah, mm. oh, okay, yeah. And then there's Spode. Spode also, because he keeps trying to beat up Gussie. He's also <laughs> violating the code. And the poor police officer who's walking yes. out there. He's left at the end of the story. The police officers never car. come out good in a Woodhouse book. But he's patrolling for no reason in the middle of a thunderstorm. <laughs> they forget to tell him to come in. <laughs> yeah, Bassett doesn't doesn't really think of his people very well, does he? And that is the one thing about Woodhouse, I mean, about uh, Bertie, is as much of a fool as he is, he is sort of in the end at least... Like he's somewhat he he makes an attempt to be considerate. Um, like he oftentimes his view of what what it is to be considerate is, um, uh, a failure. <laughs> but he he's not a cruel person. No, I think he tries to do the right thing in so much as he can comprehend what the right thing is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the comprehension is the problem, not the action. Right. Did you see the article someone posted on Facebook? I tagged you and it was Probably so not. fascinating about uh, how P.G. Woodhouse was banned from Russia in 1929. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And the ban was lifted in the 1990s and P- the whole country's like nuts for P.G. Woodhouse. And they acted out and they watched the TV show and they read the books. It was fascinating. And it talked about how it specifically used this phrase, which we talked about last week, uh, that there was an innocence in the book that the Russian people were deeply responding to an innocence and a joy and a, mm. and a leisure and a free feeling. Mm. I can't imagine why he was banned, but I mean, they banned a lot of things well, so because he was pleasant and enjoyable. <laughs> Maybe so, but I just thought that was so interesting that, uh, and I also thought it was funny because we keep talking about how we need to do a Russian novel. So apparently we did. So there you go, guys. We did a Russian novel because you want to know what Russians are reading? They're reading Woodhouse. Boom. (laughs) Plot twist. (laughs) Can you guys think of any, um, any modern works or modern even television shows or movies, directors that owe a heavy debt or are doing an emulation of Woodhouse. I know you mentioned Sayers, but anything. Well, last week, I think, I think, I think, I think all these comedy duos, right. Where you have a straight man and a silly guy. I mean, even like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin. And uh, we talked last week about uh, Peter Sellers and Tony Curtis. No comedians also who are dead as well. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. Sean and Gus from, uh, from uh, Psych. Hey, Psych. That that's actually that's, that's a good one. It is. I think because, about that all the time. Because Sean's incapable of acting. Well, I mean, well, the thing is, Sean has a superpower. Not really, but a superpower, he's, but but he's like, incapable he's of navigating life. He really is. Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, and Gus. Yeah, I'm. Yeah. I, I was just thinking of, um, like the Coen Brothers do. What's their rhythm? Is it two dramas and a comedy? Something I like think that? Some, yeah. Like they have the cycle yes. that they do. And in their comedies, you always have somebody who's inept um, and is hmm. seeing the world incorrectly and lands in a bunch of trouble. Yeah. And then, yeah. I don't know. But there, yes. that, 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 I have to think about that to see if they're like, think about how that works out. But that's a good one. The Coen brothers definitely do that. And they'll have these pairs of they have pairs of characters a lot. And their humor is very literary. Like for, it's, that's it's, for sure. Yeah. And it's very fast. So it, a lot of Coen brother comedies are like a screwball comedy, that 1930s feel with the dialogue, you know, that yeah, Woodhouse like even the has. Big Lebowski, which doesn't take place then 
it's got that that sort of it's part of that tradition it's all just built on misunderstandings and ignorance. yes and very much misunderstandings very sharp fast dialogue um i asked last week if there was a relationship between vaudeville and woodhouse's development because i, I feel like there's a lot of marx brothers comedy in this too where it's it's very witty. It's a lot of play on words. It's very fast, but there's also a lot of physical humor and silliness all mixed up together. Hmm. Hmm. Hey, Angelina, you have to go, don't you? I do. Colorado <laughs> awaits. I'm going to someplace appropriately called the Garden of the Gods. So obviously, Enjoy. I must go. Yeah, well, we'll let you go. We will say farewell. Um, thanks to everyone who's been listening. Like I said, we will be back next week with our uh, Code of the Boosters Q&A. Tim, uh, sensibly once he had. gets out of the chokey <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Tim will be rejoining us <laughs> yeah he he was pinching somebody's cow he was trying to have a cow creamer for the show and it just he didn't may work. have pinched a policeman's helmet that is not a good move that does seem like the most likely scenario for him actually now that i think about it. <laughs> you have to remember tim push forward and then up yeah. <laughs> these are all lines from the book graham <laughs> <laughs> just so you know that was bernie's big advice to the guy just remember push forward and then up when <laughs> stealing a, a policeman there's a strap go ahead graham should we um should we invite our listeners to come join us in louisville yes we should as i said at the beginning of the show or rather angelina won't have heard me say this because i didn't say it on the air but we have a um we have a um two scholarships for the summer institute and then we also have a conference coming up in louisville kentucky so we'll talk about louisville first um we have two weeks from today we will be doing our conference in louisville kentucky <clears throat> with the classical consortium so this is it's all on the southern liberal arts it's going to be a great lineup we've got uh, martin Cawthorn, chris perrin hank and carol reynolds uh, my dad's his russia travel got canceled speaking of russia mm -hmm. so he's going to be joining us uh matt he tried Marco, to sneak Brian pg Phillips, woodhouse into the Andrews. country it was a whole thing yeah, yeah it was a whole thing um <laughs> so uh join us we have a few seats left um we're looking to get 15 more seats filled uh there's hotel rooms if you if you uh, are willing to stay at the hotel we're giving away curriculum so if you have any questions about any of this you can email me david at cerciinstitute.com um and we would love to see you there we also have two seats that we're giving away uh because of scholarships sponsored by the institute for excellence in writing and classical academic press for our summer institute so email me a again david at cerciinstitute.com email me with a description of why you should be awarded one of these two seats the submission is due by friday may 11th and the winner will be announced monday may 14th um we we just read books and eat food in the mountains. Angelina's been to the summer. It's institute. amazing. Oh, it's a ton of fun. It's it's liter it's literature camp for grownups. It is. <laughs> it like, is. Yeah, if you're yeah. at home, like man, I wish there was a camp. This is it. This is your camp. This is book camp. If you don't know about IEW or Classical Academic Press, then that's weird, and you should probably find out about them. Um, you can go to IEW.com/slash/start to learn about. Uh, their lifetime 100% money back guarantee on their programs. They provide teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials, which will aid in training students to become better listeners, speakers, readers, writers, and thinkers. Uh, Andrew Pudua and the whole IEW team are long-term friends of ours, and we're really grateful that they have partnered with us to make these seats possible. It's not a cheap event, and so um, it's it's full up. But we wanted to offer two seats as scholarships, and they're helping us do that because we know it's an and sort of expensive event and that that sort of precludes a lot of people from doing it um especially sometimes. in fact one of our close read listeners won the scholarship last year that's yeah that's true um so 
you guys can go on Facebook and try to figure out. We'll just, that's the only <laughs> clue we're going to give. Figure it out now. Um, and then, of course, uh, Classical Academic Press has a has a program called Classical U. That's classicalu.com, um, where they have over 25 courses to guide you. They have master classical educators from all over the nation instructing their Classical U courses. So you can study with mentors all at your own pace. You can preview all courses for free, and the subscriptions to the entire Classical U training site are what, less than $20 a month, I think. I know dad's been on there. Josh Gibbs has been on there. Uh, I think I don't want to start listing names without them being in front of me because I'll probably leave people out and that wouldn't be fair. Um, that in, the subscription includes downloadable resources, curriculum guides for schools and co-ops, as well as a brand new forum to discuss specific course content or general classical education topics. And you have access to these also through the Classical U application. So if you desire to increase your classical education knowledge or become a better educator, Classical U can help you. Visit classicalu.com to enjoy all of these free previews or to subscribe. And again, thanks so much to IEW and Classical Academic Press for, um, for sponsoring this. And if you want to put your name in the hat for a scholarship, it's open to anyone, uh, no matter what your kind of educational circumstances are. Just shoot me an email, david at cerciainstitute.com, and we will be announcing that on Monday, May 14th. So... Um, that's it for this week. Um, we would love to see you in Louisville. We would love to see you at the Summer Institute. Um, Angelina, do you have any final thoughts before we, before we let you go? Do your Colorado ex- explorations <laughs> and speaking. Uh, no, this was fun. It was a good, uh, good pick. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I love this book. We'll do the Q&A next week. Graham, thanks for filling in for Tim. And Thank you, uh, Graham. That was great. Yeah, I think- and, now, and you've told me books I should read. I did not even know about those. You're Who welcome. knew you didn't have to read the book to do the show? I'm going to let that be a lesson to us all. <laughs> you act like that's the first time this has yeah. happened. <laughs> I think even though I had to kind of carry you guys through this episode, it was probably, <laughs> probably one of the best ones. We've done. I, probably. I don't know. What does that say about Tim? Hmm. Uh, hmm. Hmm. We'll just end it with, with that thought lingering out there somewhere. Um, we'll let that be the final thought for this episode. So for Angelina Stanford... For Graham Pittman, for Tim McIntosh, who couldn't, you know, m- make himself get out of the chokey and couldn't yeah. get internet in the chokey. And for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Kern saying farewell here on Close Reads. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week with our Q and A episode for the Code of the Woosters. Mm-hmm.